Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome everybody to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah. Yourself? I'm doing good. Not I've not been enjoying the extreme heat lately, though. It's a little ridiculous. Yeah, definitely over the top. When you walk outside and your glasses fog up and you can't see anything, it's it's not supposed to be like that, I don't think. Yeah. I've heard studies about, like, it's going to get too hot for humans, even. So, it's a little When is that going to happen? I Probably sooner than later with the temperatures that I've encountered outside. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not for me. I don't know. And apparently this is like a large part of the southern U.S. for lots of summers. So I'm, I, I don't know if it, that is for me to live there. <laughs> but we don't live there. That's the problem. <laughs> right, right. And in we only six have months, d- it's going to be negative 40. <laughs> yeah. and then we'll be wishing we lived there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what you've been doing since we last talked? Oh, just working away. I had the opportunity to go into a high school CNA program and give some education to some high school students. So that was really fun. That's pretty exciting. Was it a any kind of certificate program or just kind of just basic stuff? Um, so we uh, we worked with them on basic infection prevention and control and did some like activities with glow germ and that kind of stuff. But they are in uh, Med Academy, and they will end up graduating with their CNA certificate. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What have you been up to? Oh, I don't know. Seeing lots of patients and uh, trying to figure out uh, uh, where I'm going, if I'm coming or going. I don't know. It's just been it's been crazy the last few weeks. It, uh, I don't know where time goes. Trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. Yeah, someday I'll figure that out. (laughs) All right. Well, we have an awesome guest on today. Um, Our guest has actually been on our sister podcast, The Mouthy IP, when we talked a little bit about dental aerosols. But today we have on Dr. Josh Santarpia, and he is the Associate Director of Academic Affairs at the Global Center for Health Security and the Associate Professor in the Department of Pathology and Microbiology at UNMC. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, and I actually was promoted this summer, so I'm now a full professor yeah. in uh, hey, pathology yeah. and microbiology. So yeah, I don't know how I convinced them um, that that was a good idea, but I did. So here we are. Now you need to convince them to update the website. Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, yep. I don't control that. <laughs> That was a lot of words too. I'm glad you read that, Sarah. And I didn't have to read that. That was that was long. Because look, we were talking before uh, you got on, Rick, about all the different hats that he is wearing. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, hat collecting at the university is encouraged. Large (laughs) hat collections mean (laughs) mean something. So, yeah, doesn't mean more money though, does it? Never. No, it does not. means more problems (laughs) exactly (laughs) 
That is too funny. Mm. So, um, Josh, you have kind of a unique position. I think it's awesome. Um, All of the different things that you get to work with. But one of your interests is the infectious aerosols. So I'm sure you've been very busy over the last three years with the pandemic. (laughs) Um, Would you be able to talk a little bit about how you got into that position and how it's been going? Sure. Um, I mean, that's a little bit of a, you know, there's a little bit of history with me. Um, I didn't, of course, start off um, being interested in in, uh, infect any kind of infectious aerosol. In fact, I started off life um, wanting to be a physicist to do uh, like particle physics, like CERN labs kind of particle physics and not not aerosol particles, different different smaller uh, subatomic particles. And I quickly realized uh, as an undergraduate, that that was not a career path that led to making any kind of money any anytime soon, um, and that I might postdoc for a dozen years or more, and and hope very much hope to get a, a job, a faculty position at some point. But you know, uh, they're few and far between. So um, I made some adjustments, and I wound up in graduate school doing uh, mostly air pollution related work. So aerosol aerosol particles as a general rule, but largely chemical aerosol particles and, and looking um, at climate feedbacks of aerosols and clouds, um, which was interesting to me. And um, largely what it led me to is doing a lot of uh, instrumentation work and building my own instruments to do samples and to collect samples and things like that, um, which turned out to be of interest to uh, um, to the Army, uh, Army's Edgewood Chem Bio Center when I graduated. And they thought that that experience would be useful to them in, in testing biological sensors. Um, and they weren't entirely wrong, um, but it was a, a lot of learning to do because biology was not my main focus throughout most of my education um, and certainly not microbiology and uh, infectious disease. But I started, I had to learn. Um, so that was what I spent most of my time uh, in that particular position doing was learning the biology learning about biological aerosols and, you know, why we care about them. And at the time for me, that was literally all defense related and trying to protect from a potential nefarious attack and design sensors to, to do that. And I, I have done and still do that uh, as a part of my, my general research work. But um, after going through a couple of other positions, lastly at uh, Sandia National Labs in Albuquerque, um, when I came here, I wanted to sort of refocus on, not just doing defense related, you know, biodefense related work, but um, also on applying it to public health and infectious disease. Um, because there's not, there wasn't at the time, and, and much has changed over the last few years, but there wasn't at the time as much work done in those areas for, uh, you know, in, in sort of the aerosol science of, you know, infectious aerosols. There wasn't as much work being done at the time when I came. And so I thought this is a good opportunity for me to, you know, maybe reframe my research focus a little bit and, and start to look in, at different things. And I got involved with lots of um, looking at how aerosols move in the medical environment, both in our biocontainment unit and in some uh, military medical applications. And we and and then 2020 happened um, and COVID, COVID-19 happened and I think a lot of the background that I had doing work for national security work, we had a lot of 
things that we're ready to set up to try and take measurements around, um, you know, around patients and, and whatnot. So um, we were in a good position when we got our first folks here uh, from the Diamond Princess cruise ship to try and better understand transmission with COVID-19. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, that was, uh, you know, before about April or May of 2020, if you told someone that you worked with biological aerosols or infectious aerosols, they they tried to, they were thinking about spray cans and why would you want to put, why, you know, they're bacteria in spray cans? Like, how does that even work? I don't understand. And, and now it's become a lot more a part of the, the vernacular of, uh, of the country. People, if you say like aerosols, I think people go more toward disease than they do um, than they do spray cans than would have been true about four years ago. So um, that part of the education of the public uh, is something that I'm happy to have been a part of in many ways. Um, and and also in sort of reframing the way we think about um, transmissions of, of infectious disease uh, that, you know, the community that I'm a part of uh, has been a big part of trying to help with, help improve understanding of over the course of the pandemic. So um yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's what you wanted, but that's sort of the a roundabout kind of wandering version of how I got to where I am today. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, very, very interesting. Now, stepping back into, you know, what, February of 2020 when uh, we got those first patients. And I know that everybody around here was kind of excited to do, you know, figure out how this was transmitted and doing all these environmental cultures and everything else. You're sitting around and you're all chatting i can see like brett major and james lawler and john lowe and you guys all figuring out how are we going to do this so how did you figure where were you culturing how did you set up design this did you have like different things where you had maybe this room set up one way and another room set up a different way to figure out what the or did you just say we're going to do what we normally do and see where we find the virus so well i so we didn't. Okay. Well, I guess let's step back a little bit. So I had actually done um, a little bit of work when I was still at Sandia National Labs, looking uh doing some work with uh, MS2, which is a bacteriophage, um, and being able to aerosolize and collect it inside the biocontainment unit. Um, and we, at the time, we were interested in much larger particles. Uh, there was some concern by a fair amount of people that sometimes droplets, large droplets, might be involved in the transmission of Ebola virus. And, you know, mostly more than likely from the concern was around like doffing PPE and things like that, like grossly contaminated PPE. And so we were trying to figure out like, okay, where's the best place for us to sample in the biocontainment unit in order to collect something, you know, an infectious virus that might be coming from, you know, from the patient area or this area, or that area. And so we had done those experiments um, with, you know, with that that question in mind, and it wasn't exactly what we wound up doing for this, but since we'd already had some experience, we, you know, we're kind of familiar with the biocontainment unit and where we found things. There was some modeling that had been done on the biocontainment unit um, and validated with some smoke flow studies. And so we had some ideas about where things might deposit and where, where we should best sample there. But around December of 2019, when they were first starting to get reports of, um, this disease in China, uh, one of the the biocontainment unit nurses had talked to me about like, could we do an aerosol study in the biocontainment unit to see if we're if our protocols are up to 
you know, up to handling an airborne disease. Like if we can just use the same set of protocols that we've been using to to care for people with something that's an airborne disease in in the unit, not really knowing severity or what this would become at the time, they were really concerned about, you know, like if we have to treat this like a, you know, like Ebola or something else, and we get a handful of patients and treat them, like, are we, are we prepared to do that? And so I had started getting ready to to do that study in a controlled way. And we had done studies like this for um, for the military and for the Department of State on their air medical transport systems. And so we'd had some experience with how and you know how we were going to do these sort of tracer model studies to look for both where things tend to go and you know, are we are you cross-contaminating yourself in the process of doing this? If there's an aerosol present, is you know, is this still a safe way to, to operate kinds of questions? And so um, we had already done some of this work with the military and with state department. We'd done some of this work with biocontainment unit already. And so in January, I was drawing up plans for how we were going to do these tracer studies in our quarantine unit and our biocontainment unit to try and, you know, prove out protocols and whatnot. And we were about two weeks away from doing that experiment. Um, when I got the call that we were, that they were, we were getting patients from the diamond princess, um, and so we're like, well, I guess, yeah, as my department chair at the time said, you got to do the, the study with live bullets. Right. <laughs> so, um, so we had a plan based on, you know, under, you know, trying to understand the HVAC situation in the room, trying to understand how people were going to use the room, you know, use the rooms and things like that, and how we expected things to move inside the room and what, what would be important to, to prove and not prove or show and not show um, certainly with the first set of experiments, we made some, uh, I made some assumptions about what was going to be good enough to prove aerosol and, uh, to prove that there was an aerosol component and, uh, was quickly met with a lot of opposition to that concept, uh, as we put out the findings from that study. Right. So, um, so then we decided that's okay. Well, we have to like, go after this specifically right the the problem specifically and so we started doing some more work by that time by the time these these things were happening and we were talking you know people were reading stuff and we were talking to other people um it became pretty apparent that uh um what we needed to do you know community spread had already started to happen and so we had we weren't overloaded at the time, but we had, you know, we had pretty routine number of patients and we were still um, isolating everybody. It was still like under control. So they were all in ICU and things like that. And we were able to go in and do some more really specific, you know, figure out which size particles had virus, which size particles we could culture virus from, um, at least in some fairly broad bands, ones that made sense for, um, you know, sort of the five micron and one micron kind of cut off points and and what we found was that they were in we we could culture from really small particles even though we could find evidence of virus and, and all the particle sizes we looked at so um that was concerning to me um not exactly what i expected to find although in retrospect probably should have been uh but that was a there was a surprising finding and um at, at least as inflammatory as the as, as previous data so um it, it was it, it's amazing how, how how much difficulty getting things like that published were at that time at that period of time in, in 2020 so 
um, there's a lot of opposition in, among the reviewing community as well as the you know sort of public uh, people that were saying things in public. That is really interesting. Um, so as you were going through, at what point in the pandemic did you kind of with your team decide that you had a good handle on um, like how the aerosols are spreading and all of that? Probably March. It, it really early uh, to me okay. on on the inside of the evidence that we had um I, I was pretty confident in small particle spread from from really early on um the measurements we did in april confirmed it but i was pretty suspicious of small like maybe not as small as we saw but there was enough evidence in other people's data and and what we had collected to suggest that um you know at least a micron and maybe smaller particles were going to have in fact at least infectious potential and then we confirm that and then other people confirm that and and so it's it's been um that kind of snowballed but by the time i was pretty sure in march i was absolutely positive in april and by the time july rolled around um I, seeing other people's evidence as well and it took all of us a little while to get it published but um you know they didn't some of those things didn't actually get published until like 2021 um, because of either extended review timelines. I mean, we put them on the archive, so they're out there for everyone to, to see. But the, you know, the peer review process, I had I had one of those papers stuck in peer review for like four months in a, a journal to yet to be unnamed um, <laughs> that, that I won't name. Uh, very frustrating. So, so anyway. I follow a Facebook page called Reviewer 2 Must Be Stopped. <laughs> it, it's hilarious if you are interested in following it <laughs> uh, so there's a youtube i think it's on youtube or maybe it's a sketch uh, maybe it's a sketch comedy thing but it's uh it's what's the hitler movie there's a there's a hitler movie that's like when they assassinated hitler um i can't remember the name of the movie but they recast the whole thing with like him screaming about reviewer two so it's like it's the, the scene from the movie and it's Hitler like throwing a fit at all of his generals about reviewer two. It's it's actually pretty hysterical. That's awesome. <laughs> I wish I could find I, I wish I could uh wish I had the name of it, but it's it's pretty hilarious. I definitely <laughs> felt that way. <laughs> so when you're looking at um at uh you know we're talking about COVID, comparing that to other viral pathogens, has that been kind of? Uh, do you have like just to say something like influenza, or parainfluenza, or something like that? You know, compared to those types of pathogens, you know, how much more aerosol, you know, is there with COVID versus those? Um, you know, I think it. it let me, I, I guess, so even with COVID, there's a lot of variability, both person to person and um, and in a single person throughout their, certainly throughout their infectious period, but even like, I think throughout the day, um, I can like anecdotally, and this is sort of indicated in several publications, but we, you know, we would take samples in people's rooms and we would get you know, sometimes you'd see a lot of stuff and sometimes you'd see nothing. And I was like, well, it's probably to do with, you know, timelines of infections and things that I don't exactly, I, things that are hard to put numbers on, for instance. And I, I know that that's in some ways true, but 
we took, I mean, even when we were taking uh, samples with this uh, mask that people would wear and breathe and talk into for a period of time, we'd still get ones and zeros, right? This person's, you know, diagnosed today, this person's diagnosed today, like this person producing all kinds of aerosol, this person, nothing, you know? And, and I talked to people and like, with COVID, there was a lot of difference in, in symptoms and things like that. And sometimes that seemed to correlate with, with aerosol production. Um, and, and so like, that's been, I think that was very confusing. And I think caused a lot of, I think that caused a lot of grief and a lot of argument about what, what was real and what was not real um, early on in the pandemic. And I think it's become more apparent that, that, that person to person variability and timing, you know, sort of time variability is a real thing. And that that's, that's part of it. Um, I think even when I went in thinking about this, like you think about it, like everybody's like pig pen from peanuts. Right. And they've got this right. cloud of stuff around them. Right. And it, it, it's just not true. That's not the way it works. And, uh, and I think, you know, there's, there's even evidence from like tuberculosis and things like that, that it's, it's very similar in TB that you're not always, even when you're in acute phase, you're not always just expelling tuberculosis aerosols. Um, it's likely to be true um, in many other studies. I mean, you see the same kinds of variability in studies with influenza aerosols. Um, I will say, and I'm writing an article, like sort of a review, a mini review article right now with some colleagues. And one of the things that we're looking at in terms of source, um, like source as a function of disease, is that, you know, where you where the disease colonizes in your respiratory tract makes a big difference on not just the, the composition of the particle that comes out, because what, what you expel is mostly not virus. It's mostly still the same crap that you breathe out all the time. And if you're sick, some of there's some virus in it, right? When you're really acutely sick and maybe shedding the most, there may be like much more virus in it, but viruses are very, very tiny, even in comparison to most of the particles that we care about that might carry them. Um, but both the size of particle that's important and the composition changes depending on what disease it is. I mean, you, there's some commonalities because some diseases colonize the same areas of the lungs um, or the same areas of the respiratory tract. But like you can see a lot of variability, just, you know, infection to infection, um, person to person, disease to disease. So there, there's lots of variables in here that, that kind of control what what we would actually see. And it complicates without a full kind of like kind of fully exploring this is the reason we're writing this review without fully exploring this it's really hard to explain to somebody that like well pretty much any observation is potentially correct it just depends on what's actually happening inside that person which i may or may not know a whole lot about yeah, I mean, and that makes any recommendation for PPE complicated as well, right? Because we th we like to think of clinically, you know, you've got droplet, you've got airborne. You know, you wear a procedure mask or surgical mask or you wear something like an N95 or something like that. And we like, you know, this you do it, this you do this. Um, but it sounds like that really maybe isn't right in every situation that some situations you could use. I mean, almost even nothing. You wouldn't know that, but you could use maybe a yeah. surgical mask or procedure mask is fine. Other situations with the same illness, you might need the N95. Yeah, I, that's a that's a really fair statement. And it, it's really hard to know um, sort of a priori, like what the right answer is. Right. Just because someone has a particular disease in a particular phase, like it doesn't necessarily like 
not good at driving that that data all by itself. I had really hoped even with with COVID-19 and, and I tried this and um, to try and look at like the if you look longitudinally, like is there is there some other factor, some other diagnostic factor that I could use as a determinant for like, OK, it's safe to lower the PPE posture, right? You don't have to go full airborne. Like, is there is there a point in disease where they might still be hospitalized? But, you know, and can I objectively determine that? And the answer was not with the data that I had. Um, and it wasn't, you know, wasn't a perfect data set, but we did have quite a lot. Um, not to say that there weren't trends in the data that were interesting and useful, um, and maybe somewhat obvious, um, but it wasn't, it couldn't, there's no rigid line where I could say like, yeah, if this is, you know, if these, if these three things are true, then you can drop your PPE posture. And I, I kind of hope that that might be the case, but it never really panned out that way. So I, you know, on a disease by disease basis, I probably have to argue that you have to go with the most stringent, you know, the most stringent PPE posture until proven otherwise. Which is typically what we try to do. Uh, I, it's the smart thing to do, in my opinion, yeah. right? Yeah. And interesting. So how far out were you culturing virus from somebody's acute infection? Um, so we didn't do a lot of samples with from from humans in particular. So we didn't take human samples. We were taking samples from the air. Um, other folks did the cultures from the human samples. And I think, uh, you know, that's that started where you were getting the recommendations of like 10 days, five days out right. from from uh, whatever is where you were getting those recommendations from, like how long they could culture in, in, uh, in that, in uh, from like uh, an NP swab or something like that. But um, from our data, cultures actually really was really challenging. Um, the people that we had the best luck culturing from were generally early stage illness, which mm -hmm. again, tracks more acute, more production, more likelihood of of finding a virus and not screwing it up in the process of collecting it and and processing the sample and doing all of the the manipulation that we have to do um, in order to culture it, you know, getting it to the point where we could actually culture it and and uh, and so you know the the higher the number the better your chance of finding culture evidence of uh, of culturability and so but we had a couple of cases that people were had been sick for quite some time and there were extenuating circumstances and, and they, we were still able to see some evidence of culture um, out of some of those people that had been sick for quite some time. So that was, you know, that, so it's, yeah, I, it depends. I think most of the time, probably like, especially with the current variants, at least through Omicron, maybe like the likelihood of getting something culturable out of somebody's probably ends after about two or three days yeah, of, yeah. Of, of acute illness. Yeah. There were some immune compromised people. I think that, uh, you know, you could maybe find it uh, quite a bit longer, but I, I and yeah. I think at the end of the day, that kind of explains a little bit about uh, how we came up with our isolation periods. Uh, ultimately mm -hmm. at the end, you know, some of that was based on culturable virus when we could find it and everything else. And some of it was just based on, we knew after 10 days that transmission seemed to be really unlikely we couldn't track it as well epidemiologically yeah. so that uh, that's part of what made sense but it's cool how you guys did those uh, early experiments and figured some of this stuff out how did you capture the virus in the air um so we are uh 
we used actually really simple technology um, for most of our studies. Again, I, I was I had done some studies with other viruses and the best ways to do it in austere environments. So I was, I was very focused on on uh, doing things in like maybe sub-Saharan Africa or or in military transport or government transport planes, things like that, where I wasn't going to have access to you know um, where putting some complicated piece of equipment in play was not the best option for me, right? Or um, so what we wound up using are these little, um, I don't know if you guys, you guys remember dust busters mm-hmm. like from, yeah. So like the little handheld vacuum cleaners. Yep. So these things look remarkably like dust busters, um, except that on the end, instead of like the little, the little funnel part, it's just got a big open face filter and that filter is made of um, partially dried gelatin. So it feels dry to the touch, but there's some, there's still some liquid in the fibers in the gelatin fibers that you wind up that you find. And so, um, they were, those, those filters were designed to develop or to originally to collect, uh, and preserve the viability of like bacteria, like gram negative bacteria, things that are like a little, um, more sensitive to, to some of the physical forces of collection. So designed to, you know, kind of absorb some of the impact and, and be a little more friendly environment once they were collected. Um, so we wound up using those one because we had a bunch of them stocked up from the uh, from the experiments from before, and and two because that at the time I was able to get all the all the equip all the reagents and everything I needed to process them um, in in enough time to do the work. Um, we tried a bunch of other things over the course of the pandemic, and I think um, I probably used those more than anything else. Uh, that we had, we tried some other liquid collectors and things like that. And a colleague of mine in Florida, uh, John Lednitsky, actually uses um, and helped develop uh, condensation-based, it, it, a more complicated system. It actually works much better, and, and it's a little there's less stress on the particle on the virus post collection, and so it makes the cultivation easier. I think he's had a lot better success, and we're we're getting some of those now. So, um, you know, for for ongoing work, future work. But yeah, yeah, little little dust buster. That's what I use most of the time. (laughs) This is such a cool conversation. I have so many questions. Um, Were you, so up to this point, you've talked about specimen collection in a healthcare setting. Did you ever do anything outside of a healthcare setting or maybe even with like asymptomatic patients and spread? Um, So, yeah, we were... 2020 primarily and even into 2021 a little bit um we were everywhere anybody asked us to be all the time um we did a bunch of military airplanes mostly we were doing so a lot of that stuff we were doing tracer work we were trying to figure out like look at the role of their ventilation system and spread and trying to identify which which planes were most appropriate for personnel transport you know sick not sick asymptomatic not asymptomatic um, so we did a bunch of tracer work with them, commercial planes, uh, cruise ships. Uh, I don't know. We, I, I, I'm going to forget schools. We did a lot in, we did a lot in Omaha public schools. There was a big public school program, um, that I was a part of, uh, several months of work there. That was largely in 21, late 20, early 21. Um, and then we also did a good bit of work in meatpacking plants, uh, largely in Nebraska, but um, also in some other states. 
trying to understand transmission there. And, and we, so the interesting part about that, they wanted something like a tracer study, but it's hard to do a tracer study in a meatpacking plant because of food regulations. So you can't, in, in, in practice, I probably could have done it, but the timeline to get approval to release something that's not supposed to be there uh, would have been maybe ruined the study itself. So um, we wound up doing was developing an assay uh, for a human respiratory surfactant, uh, the mRNA for a human respiratory surfactant. And so we can basically look for human generated respiratory particles, um, whether they have virus in them or not. And so we wound up doing that in combination with looking for, for COVID-19 in some of those, in, in particular in the meatpacking plants, but also in, um, I've used it a lot actually throughout the hospital and as a positive control in a lot of our, our sample collections um, since, since developing it. And it actually works, it, it actually works pretty well. Um, and the interesting thing is that, that that really helps in occupied spaces to understand where the likelihood of exposure is, much more so than looking for any kind of virus would. Um, that said, in some of the plants that we worked in, we would occasionally get positives for COVID-19, which is a little frightening to me, um, because even with a in a, in a patient room, my likelihood of like I, getting a positive is is not it's not 100%, right? Even when, when you know some person is in there, they're sick, and they're not going anywhere, you sample for half an hour, hour and a, you know, half an hour to several hours, and like, maybe you get a positive, maybe you don't. So it's concerning to me when I go out into the open public and I don't know that every, you know, when I don't know that everyone's sick and you still get some positives, those are actually really concerning positives in my opinion, because that means that in that space, whatever it is for some amount of time, there was someone who was sick enough to, that we would collect enough of their, you know, of their material, of their viral, you know, what they respired. So I've, I've oftentimes said that if you find it in the public, there's probably like active transmission happening, like right then. So, so when you were out <laughs> and had potentially found something in the public, how were, were you protecting yourself during these tests? Always. Yeah. You, well, it, so for two reasons, one, because at the time masks were, I mean, masks were mandated and it was good practice, especially, but two, um, since I'm looking for evidence of human aerosols as well like you don't want to sample yourself so we all we always we always had to mask like in 95 mask up just for source control on on some of the experiments that we're doing that makes sense so with all of these experiments that you've done what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned and you've applied in your daily life um i think like I, I learned a lot that transmission wasn't always happening in the in the ways that we initially blamed uh, like blamed it on, right? So uh, the cruise ship was maybe my first my the first real like material introduction to that. They were really concerned. It was a cruise company that actually hired us to do the work. They were really concerned that the that there was a potential role for the ventilation system in in spreading the disease because it's a you know it's a big ship and they they don't it's not all fresh air there's you know they have their ventilation systems designed a specific way to to ma maximize efficiency not necessarily uh you know not necessarily fresh air intake that's actually the most inefficient 
um, all fresh air is like incredibly inefficient when you're doing an HVAC system. And so um, recycling air that's already cooled to keep things cooler is actually the most efficient way to do it. And they have really tricky ways to do that, um, both in the big buildings um, and on cruise ships and other places like that. So they were concerned that you know there was potentially a role. They didn't think so, but they didn't, they wanted to be sure, right? Because cruise ships, especially after Diamond Princess, but in general, cruise ships get a bad rap for you know quote unquote bad air, um, stale air, and things like that. Airplanes too. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, we what we found was that although it's not impossible. For something to like make it from one person's room through the HVAC system back to somebody else's room on the um you know on the same in the same ventilation system, it was practically impossible, right? It's it's we we released so much more material than than any sick person ever would. And you just basically start you see it just dilute out over the course of that thing until it's not it's not identifiable anymore. You can't you can't pick it up anymore. Um, we, you see a lot of that with the, uh, there was a lot of concern about airplanes, I think, initially too, because it's, you know, it's a giant flying metal tube and you just can find in people in close quarters. Um, but from an aerosol perspective, airplanes were originally, these most airplanes were designed to remove smoke from cabins when smoking was still allowed. And so they have some good, really effective smoke removal systems that are part of the HVAC. And what that means is that they have really effective particulate removing systems that are as a part of their HVAC. And so when the HVAC on an airplane is running, it's probably as safe, if not, or as safe, it, it removes particles more quickly than even like our containment spaces, right? Our high containment spaces. And so it's a really, from an aerosol perspective only, and I have to caveat this all the time, from an aer aerosol perspective, it's when the HVAC system's running, like it's, you know, your likelihood of being exposed to the aerosols produced by someone that's even like two people away from you is really low. Um, but, you know, you can't control it if they fall asleep on your shoulder or they, they look at you and, and cough in your face or, you know, like those are the, there's uncontrolled situations that happen because people are in close quarters that you cannot control for. But in terms of just purely like aerosol source and sink kinds of problems, like you don't see it very much. And so like a plane, once it's taken off and in the air, pretty safe until you get to, you know, until they, until they power down the HVAC system. Then it didn't like, I, I always tell people like when they were asking me these kinds of questions, like, well, if you get on the plane and it feels stuffy, yeah, it's the HVAC's not running. So, you know, put your, you know, that's, you want to wear your mask. But when you get up to, if you're worried, you know, if you're worried and like, I'm always, it's, Risk is a personal decision, right? What kind of risks you're willing to take is a personal decision. What, what that means if you get sick and if you don't get sick, like people make, you have to make those decisions for yourself about when it's important and not important to, to protect yourself, right? And, and some people have much higher consequences for becoming sick with something than other people. So make a risk decision based on that. But if you're trying to protect yourself, the time to protect yourself when you're traveling is until you get to, alt to altitude and until you like probably until you're landing, right? Because when you're in the air, taking your mask off and eating and doing things like that's not really that, you know, your risk of exposure is not really super high. Yeah, um, certainly in the security line, right? <laughs> or the jet bridge, for that matter. Yeah, the jet bridge, yeah. <laughs> There's no air movement in there, is there? No, it's just a dead box. Um, <laughs> and... 
and the other thing, like the other, so like the meatpacking plants are another big eye opener for me too, because there's a lot of concern about transmission on the packing floor, right? People are side by side. They're, you know, they're really in, in these uh, close quarters doing, doing this work with the animal, you know, with the, you know, for the packing work itself. And so there was all of this, and there had been outbreaks in meatpacking plants um, that caused shutdowns and problems with the food supply. And so it was a big, it was a big deal. And when we went and did the work, you know, to be fair, like every plant we went to had already been implementing, uh, you know, things like mask wear, you know, universal mask wear and, and all those kinds of stuff. And I, I know it helps. Um, but the reality was just looking at the situation, um, again, from a food safety perspective, all the packing floors have upwelling air, like so floor to ceiling upwelling air and a lot of it. Um, and it's not you know, it's, it's a lot of air movement and they're generally big, you know, large spaces. And that, that amount of dilution and moving air is really probably helping uh, prevent transmission on the floor. The locker rooms, on the other hand, were an absolute nightmare when it came to, when it came to transmission potential, the locker rooms, the lunch rooms, places where they went to pick up their PPE would become so crowded that, I mean, they were shoulder to shoulder and the ventilation in those parts of the plants are not uh, not up to the same. They're not designed for. They're designed for like general comfort, not for particulate removal or, you know, high efficiency you know units like the like on the packing floor. They're designed you know specifically for food safety concerns to keep things from landing on the food area. So, um, <clears throat> what we found was that the worst places in the meat packing plants were likely the locker rooms and the and the lunch rooms and things like that, where people take their masks off and they do whatever they want and they're packed in there and the HVAC doesn't work very well. And so those are likely scenarios for transmission, much more likely, I think, than the packing floor. Interesting. Have you looked at uh, households? Um, we didn't. I had colleagues that did. Um, I, I think households often fall into the same category. Like our HVAC systems don't run 100% of the time. They're, they're on demand, like they cool when you need them to cool. So um, what you wind up with in a house is... Uh, a lot of the ventilation that you get is actually just from windows and, and natural natural sources and occasionally from the HVAC system. And most people don't put high efficiency filters in their HVAC unless they have bad allergies. Um, and so you wind up with a, most homes are probably not, I mean, I wouldn't isolate, I wouldn't consider myself isolated in, in a household. Um, maybe distance is enough, distance in some different rooms or different parts of the house is enough to help in those scenarios. But I mean, realistically, if you, you can't rely on HVAC for that. Um, one of the other things we did learn though, um, and I think, and it's not just, not just us, we did some experiments with it, but other people have done um, much more exhaustive experimentation using um, the portable HEPA filters. Mm -hmm. um, portable HEPA filters are actually pretty effective if placed properly um, in a space at controlling sources. Um, we did some work in our hospital rooms to look at like, if we had, you know, if we, could we augment some of the spaces that we hope to keep, you know, COVID patients, uh, that weren't specifically airborne room, could we augment them with a HEPA filter in order to make them more safe? And the answer is yes, yes, you can. And it's probably more safe than you would get just from calculating the addition to the air exchange. Um, because you get some some advantage from directional airflow if it's placed properly, and so you get less much less likelihood of 
it making it outside the room than you than you would expect just by increasing the ventilation by only a small amount that the HEPA filter might might provide. So I think there's there's a lot of good evidence there. We did some placement in some of our testing centers, some of the occupational health testing centers. Um, we did an experiment there and we had done a bunch of testing there for several weeks and had really consistent positives on some of the long-term samplers that we had in there, ones that would run for days at a time. And then we added a HEPA filter to the waiting room and all the positives went away. <laughs> Even though the, the number of positive patients didn't change, in fact, possibly increased, although not statistically significantly, um, so we weren't, um, you know, it, 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 it works if it's done, you know, if it's done in the right way in the right scenario, it doesn't work for everything and carrying a portable HEPA filter around is probably not going to help you very much because it's actually going to pull air at you. But, um, in specific situations, you can apply that kind of technology to help a lot. That's interesting. I mean, our single biggest risk factor for colleagues getting COVID throughout the whole time was a household contact having COVID. I mean, depending on the variant, it ranged from, you know, the upper teens to as high as 40, 45% of, you know, self-reported exposures at home that subsequently tested positive in our, in our testing program. So it was, it was remarkable how, uh, you know, just like all the things that you said, it's uh, you're anywhere you were in the house, you were already exposed by the time the person even had symptoms. So it was really not going to help to run away and hide in the basement very much. Yeah, well, I can tell you that I had COVID two times and both times my wife brought it home and gave it to me. I didn't get it doing any of the work that I did or any of the other things. I, I got it at home. I got mine <laughs> from my daughter bringing it home from middle school. Yep. So, yep. Well, we are getting close to the top of the hour. Do you have any questions for us? Um, should have thought of this beforehand, but um, <laughs> I don't know what your. This is always interesting. Like, how do you guys? Uh, how do you? How do you like doing podcasts? I love it. It's a. It's a really fun break from all of my other work tasks. So it's, I have fun. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, we get to talk to people about things that they're passionate about. And it's just, you know, as you just seen, it's just a conversation that, uh, uh, you know, we can take anywhere that we want to go. We've actually been able to to talk to some very interesting people and, and about some things that they do that are just completely fascinating. And hopefully, you know, doing the podcast, we can share what they're doing with our listeners so that they can be, you know, see who's doing some of the, the fascinating things behind the scenes throughout. Uh, mostly we, you know, we started it during COVID. So a lot of it's been related to COVID, but just in, you know, healthcare, infectious disease, infection prevention, you know, whatever it might be. So it, it's a lot of fun. I certainly wish I could do more of this and less of the rest of my job. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's, it's always fun. Like I said, these are, I remember the first podcast I did during the pandemic, I was so nervous that I was going to say something wrong like, and just be, just be lampooned for, you know, you know, for the rest of, uh, for the rest of my career and, and, you do enough of them, I guess, and it, you know, it's just a conversation. Yeah, well, some of it was a little bit controversial at the beginning too, so you really didn't want to uh, 
say something that was uh, interpreted as wrong because somebody was not going to like what you said, no matter what you said, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got hate mail for a long time from one I did, but well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had to block some people. So <laughs> yeah, you know, you can't make everybody happy. No, we've not gotten any hate mail, but we did get a couple of tweets that were like replies to some of our shows that were not very nice. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I guess that's not it's Twitter, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's going to go under pretty soon. Right. They, they rename it. Right, and it's going right. to all fall apart now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us again. And for all of our listeners out there, we will catch you on the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.